So I'm, I'm here in the writer's room with Bruce Miller, the creator of The Handmaid's Tale. And rather than do a normal introduction, I figured I'd let Bruce set the scene for us. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about where we are? Uh, right now we're in my office, which is part of the writer's office. Um, and uh, we have a few bulletin boards up here with uh, cards that represent the first few episodes of season two, which is what we're working on now. Um, so the, if, if I look at those, will I be killed in a you, tragic death? You'll be the, put on the wall. I'll be put on the wall. <laughs> uh, and the way we break stories is by putting them, uh, you know, putting each beat, each kind of different story moment onto index cards and and putting up on a board, and then you can move them around and stuff like that. It's very, very, you know, non-exciting, old-school, low-tech stuff. So you uh, you've been doing this a long time, right? When did you you started at ER? Is that right? Um, I mean, one of my first TV jobs was ER. My first real TV job. I was on a show called Higher Ground before that on Fox Family, um, which was a great experience, and they taught me a, it taught me a ton. Um, and Matt Hastings and a few other people who I worked with on that show, I'm still working with. Strange, you know, amazingly enough, um, and uh, we had some. You know, A.J. Cook was in that show. Um, Hayden Christensen was on that show. It was and a great— when, when was that? It was uh, somewhere in the 1840s, I think. <laughs> um, no, it was—you uh, know, it was it was quite a while ago. I don't really remember. Oh, no, may, maybe. It was probably about—I'm I'm measuring from how old my children are. Uh, I think it was about 18 years ago, I guess, because my, my son was not quite born yet. And so uh, if you— uh, Think back then. What, at what point did you decide I want to create The Handmaid's Tale into a television show? Uh, you know, I wish it worked like that. I wish you were sitting home and you said, you know, I really want to do this. And you just pick <laughs> up the phone and then the <laughs> next thing you know, you're yes. on the set. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, I read The Handmaid's Tale was when I was in college um, in a new fiction class, which – Tells you how long ago I was in college. And um, it was a little seminar with six or seven people. I don't really remember the professor. I don't, and the only book I remember from that class is Handmaid's Tale. And I read it and I just loved it as a book. Um, I was starting to think about being a writer and it really taught me a lot about kind of how language could work or language did work. And also about storytelling and about, you know, how important point of view was. And I am uh, – rather to seriously dyslexic. Uh, so books, it takes me a long time to read a book. And then I do, I tend to read them over and over again. I don't know whether that's something all dyslexics do or not. Uh, so I read it a bunch of times over the years, The Handmaid's Tale. And I always loved it. It was just one of my favorite books. And uh, I heard they were making a movie about it. And then I saw the movie and I was like, yeah. And then I heard they were making a TV show about it. And that was great. I was just thinking of it as, ooh, a fan. You know, I love this story. It's going to be great to see. But as the years went by and the show didn't appear, I started to have my agents check every year. And as it didn't get made, my career moved along and I got better. And and then, you know, there came a time when the original people involved in the project uh, were um, – Moved on, moved on to other things. Uh, Eileen Chaikin, who who was originally for years, 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 really championed this project, um, and and really this is you know such a, it's this is her success as well. I mean, getting it on on the air, and uh, but Eileen was off doing um, Empire, a uh, little show called Empire, little show, yeah, uh, little show it. called Empire, and uh, so um, she was unavailable, and I think heartbroken that she was unavailable to 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 
write the show for Hulu, but they started to look for a showrunner. Um, and luckily, by that point, my resume had expanded enough, and more than my resume, my actual experience to do a show, to run a show without the right experience is just, I can't even imagine how horrible it would be. Oh, it's so yeah. difficult. And so, but they were looking for a female showrunner. And so that and was I'm my not. next question. So, they, they, yeah, so it's a, it's a show about women and what happens to them in this dystopian future. It's written by a woman. You've got a lot of women in the writer's room. How did you end up becoming the, the guy who, who ran the show? Uh, and has that been, has that been a, has that been a pro or a con or how, how do you perceive that? I mean, it's obviously been a pro. You've been, the, the show is incredible. Think but. of how good it would be if I was a woman. <laughs> uh, I, it, it was, it was difficult. I mean, it wasn't just difficult because I had to convince other people to trust me. I had to convince myself that, I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of the book. I was looking forward to the TV show. Just because I'm making it doesn't mean I'm not still looking forward to it. The last thing you want to do is be the ruiner of The Handmaid's Tale. Um, and it is, uh, you know, a, a female-centered book. It's centered in a female mind, um, you know, and and female relationships. And it's so, uh, you know, it's 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 a, a such a important. I didn't want to say seminal female fem, feminist work because that sounds that's not the right combination of word roots. But um, it's a it's it's such an important uh, feminist book that you you know I, I was very sensitive about doing it, and I did think that my gender was a was was a hindrance. So, but when you work in TV, because we work in a writing staff with a bunch of people, you always have weaknesses, and you're always trying to bolster those weaknesses with the people around you. So, you know, if you're working on a sciency show, you know, and you're not sciency, you hire sciency people um, because you know I come with a certain set of skills, and and my skills are very much I like. I'm very interested in characters. I'm very interested in point of view. I'm very interested in kind of interesting storytelling. But I'm not a woman. And you need someone who's going to bring that perspective, that way of going through the world uh, to the show. And so, you know, being mindful of it is one thing, but you actually have to figure out ways to address it. You can't just be sensitive to it. You actually think of practical ways to do it. And so, you know, I started to think about who I would hire on my writing staff. That's really the first step. I mean, first you're hiring Elizabeth Moss, who not only is such a, you know, was perfect for the role, but, but she was a producer on the project. She's a very intelligent, thoughtful, passionate, you know, stubborn woman, is spectacular in every way um, to work with. And so that helped right from the get-go. You have a voice in her. Did, did um, What was your first experience like me- meeting Margaret Atwood? Um, terrifying. <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, um, uh, most, most of the time when you work on a, a book, especially a classic book, the author is not – Still knocking around, yeah. And uh, Margaret is very much knocking around, uh, knockwood. And um, my first experience meeting her was in Toronto, but we exchanged a lot of emails and 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 got uh, to know each other quite a bit that way. And also talking about story points, story moments in great detail. So. Uh, by the time I met her, I, you know, at least I had a bit of a working relationship with her. Uh, but she's, you know, remarkably good at making other people relaxed around Margaret Atwood. I think it's her full-time job. Uh, so uh, I went up and we were talking, you know, we, we had breakfast and uh, she hadn't at that point yet read the, the 
pilot in the first episode. But soon after that, she did, and that was a very nerve-wracking experience. But I'm she sure. liked him quite a bit. Right. Um, and uh, I think once – I was very keen to have her insight, not just in like uh, like her permission. I wanted to talk to her. She's a like exceptional storyteller. I wanted to talk to her about story. And so that was very helpful because – Did she have notes on the first episode? Yeah. Thoughts, notes. I mean, everybody has notes. They, you know, that's why you give people things to read. You want their opinion. I mean, notes are kind of notes have a bit of a bad taste to them. You know that word. But yeah. I think you want people's response um, because that's event. You know, I'm not writing a script for me. I'm writing a script for actors who are going to perform it. If what's in it, it doesn't make sense or is, doesn't track or isn't interesting. It's not going. They're not going to make it interesting. So, so you really want people to respond as the as the, an audience, and so Margaret remarkably was able to do that. And also, she had a, she, you know, she wrote the book. I don't know, thirty something yeah, years 30 ago. Yeah, thirty something years ago. Yeah. And I'm sure she sat down to type like forty years ago, you know. And she remembered so much of why she made every little decision. That's fascinating. Which was fascinating, and I, and she's written a ton of books in the interim, so she's gone through this process a lot. I I, I don't know that I the, remember things I wrote. That... Well, just that why she decided one of I I I wrote a pilot for HBO with my wife about the Salem witch trials, mm-hmm. um, with Genji Cohn and Gus Van Zandt. It was a really fun project, but the research was fascinating, um, and I know uh, there's a lot of parallels between the way Gilead is organized and the kind of totalitarian theocracy it is and the Puritan totalitarian theocracy that, you know, uh, we have this misguided idea that, that America was a place of religious freedom when in fact people came here to escape religious persecution, but they didn't want religious freedom for anybody but themselves. And they enforced that quite strictly, especially in New England. Uh, but I knew that they used the Geneva Bible uh, not the King James Bible. The King James Bible is what Margaret uses in the book. Uh, the quotations are from the King James Bible. There are huge differences in, you know, like everything else, there's huge differences in those texts. And so I asked her, uh, because I was, and there's nobody else you can ask on the planet. Yeah. Why did you choose this <laughs> and not this? And Because she knew the Geneva Bible. She knew that was more the tradition of the Puritans. And she said, ah, the King James Bible sounded better. And she's right. The, King, the Geneva Bible is terrible, just, you know, completely, you know, twisted up everywhere. I mean, they were trying to make sure that they made their, you know, ideological point. But, boy, it's not pretty. But the King James Bible is. And so to be able to talk to her and get the specific – and you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And that went all the way down the road in a million different directions. Like, why did you decide the colonies would be this? Where did you think uh, – you know, where, where did the – new ants come from, you know, are they, you know, do people volunteer to be ants? All of those questions, uh, she had, you could, she, you could see her kind of going back in time and kind of going, I thought about this, I thought about this, I thought about this, and this was the decision. Well, to lay that bare for me, uh, just as a writer is, was exceedingly like a treasure trove. And I think for Margaret too, as she's gotten to know the writers and as she's, it's really fun for her to have a bunch of people who take what she says, take it very seriously and extrapolate out in really interesting and surprising ways. I think she's really enjoying it. So I, um, uh, I've been watching the show with my wife and it's, it's amazing. And, um, and, uh, I, I'll get nervous a lot of times in the middle of the show and I, I'll pause it and pretend I have to go to the bathroom or, or check on the baby, <laughs> even though the baby's fast asleep. Um, 
when you first saw the the pilot, the thing that you had created for the first time, uh, was it as as nerve wracking for you as the creator? And and how, why is it do you think that it is so nerve wracking? And unlike most shows out there, um, it it wasn't as nerve wracking for me because you knew what was going to happen. <laughs> partially because I knew what was going to happen, and partially because. Uh, what you saw was was me going through 10,000 times and making sure it was nerve-wracking for you. So the first version wasn't as nerve-wracking. Um, and and also, you know, I, I just tend to look at it differently. I'm trying to get it to be nerve-wracking, so I only see the parts that aren't. Um, uh, it's difficult to kind of get that. I wasn't of, aware that there were any parts that aren't nerve-wracking. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I think one of the reasons it's so nerve-wracking, you know, really two things. First, um, is that there are always stakes. Uh, there's, there, there's the possibility of being pulled out of your life and executed for doing something so minor uh, that you wouldn't even think of it these days as an action, you know, get, looking at someone a particular way, saying a particular set of words, uh, being in, the slightest bit, uh, you know, defiant. You would never think of those things. Um, but... They, you know, the rules in Gilead are very, very strict, and any small deviation is punished very severely. And so, but Gilead's not wrong. Those things are defiances. Those things are the beginning of rebellion. So the interesting thing is, is that the stakes are very high both sides. There's, if you do it, the downside is you might be executed, but the good side is you might make a connection, make a friend, find a way to survive. So the stakes are high. You really want to do it. It's not as if the only there's only sticks. There's also carrots for everybody, emotional, sociological carrots. So I think that the reason you're so tense is that you're rooting for her to do the things that she's doing, but you don't want her to do the things that she's doing because you don't want her to get caught. Um, and the other thing that really makes it work, and this is the the, I think was my first principle for the show, is it has to feel real. It has to feel like real life. Once it stops feeling like real life, you're like, oh, that would never happen. And then you're not involved. And one of the, you know, our fo our focuses, foci, one of our focuses has been, you know, Lizzie, that character of June feels like a real person. She's not more brave. She's not less brave. She's not more, uh, you know, she doesn't have more self-control or less self-control. She isn't stupid, but she certainly isn't, you know, Jason Bourne. Um, you know, this is not a situation any of us would be used to um, dealing with. Uh, and also she's, you know, uh, trying to keep her kind of spirited self alive inside, which is just, that's a, a level of rebellion that, that we can all relate to, but that's kind of her biggest rebellion. It makes you root for her. It doesn't have as many stakes until it starts to come out, but you are liking the internal voice so much you want it to come out. So what I'm trying to do in the audience is make them want things to happen that are terribly dangerous, <laughs> you know? And so yeah. that's why you're so tense all the time is the things you want are the things you don't want. Yeah. I, I, I had a few moments staring <laughs> at the TV and I was like, don't go in there. <laughs> it's like the, yeah, the, you the, turn the, into the character the, in the theater. Yeah, exactly. You <laughs> like, turn into the person in the theater on 42nd Street screaming at the screen. Yeah. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. So I want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors, SeatGeek. Um, it's an app I've personally been using on my phone a lot lately to buy tickets to concerts, sporting events, 
theaters, comedy events, you name it. Um, there's all these different ways that you can use the app. You can search for tickets based on price. You can search based on finding amazing deals. It's really a fantastic experience. One of the things that I love about it compared to other ticketing experiences is that they grade every seat based on how much money you want to spend. Uh, and then you can figure out which seats fit your budget the best. Um, plus, and this is for me the biggest bonus of all of it, uh, is that every single ticket you buy on SeatGeek is fully guaranteed. So you know that you're not getting some fake kind of ripoff thing that you would get on Craigslist. SeatGeek has become my go-to app for finding the best deals for all these kinds of events. Um, and uh, I absolutely love it. Best of all, uh, my listeners today are going to get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. All you have to do is download the SeatGeek app. Um, and then you enter the promo code HIVE, that's H-I-V-E. Once again, download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code HIVE, and you're going to get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. I promise you, you'll have a blast no matter what you end up doing. So um, it's interesting that you say, you, you talk about it feeling real. Um, you know, one of the things that I've seen on, on online, on social media and news articles and so on, and I've also tweeted a few things myself, is there are scenes in the show that are direct mirrors, black mirrors, if you will, to uh, to things that are happening today. You know, there's a there's the uh there's a moment where you know in the protests there's with you know that is uh, there are scenes that take place in Russia a few weeks ago with protesters that i mean literally you could take you could take one of those stills and swap them and you wouldn't know what the difference is um do you think that part of the tenseness and part of the fact that this show has 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 been doing so well right this moment is because of the world we live in today absolutely um I know for me as a personal, it was a personal, very strange experience to um, the particular scene you're talking about. We shot this protest scene. It was mentioned in the book very briefly, a couple of sentences, but we extrapolated it out and and said, oh, this is going to be interesting. We should show this on Dramatize It. So we did it. And then while I was editing, there was the Women's March in D.C. Yeah. And you're seeing exactly the same signs, exactly the same images. And you're also seeing, um, you know, Capitol police with guns, not firing them, thank God, but um, you know, it's the same image and it was terrifying. I mean, it, it uh, happened all through the process. Um, You know, we did stories about people, uh, Americans escaping to Canada, American refugees. And, you know, a few weeks later, there were images that were just like the images from our show of people in America escaping to Canada to get um, some security in their lives to to try to feel like the the government was going wasn't going to kick them out. And so, I think that uh, one of the things that that uh, makes one of the things that that TV has, which is wonderful, is that you can kind of bend it and flex it. As you make it, you know, you're kind of driving the Indianapolis 500 and painting the car at the same time. So you can change things. So you can adjust to what's going on in the world. And when Margaret wrote the book, she said, there's nothing that happens in the book that doesn't, hasn't happened in real life. And we have definitely, you know, subscribed to that. Um, With this kind of material on a very basic level with the it, I, I don't want to be in the business of inventing cruelties, and I certainly don't want to be in the vi- business of inventing cruelties for women. Um, 
it goes back to your other question, which is, you know, uh, why, you know, what makes me think that I could do a show about misogyny? And there's a great line from a gentleman who wrote a book said, well, men invented it, so why shouldn't we be making television shows about it? <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, we don't go looking for things uh, to invent. Yeah, that was my next question is, is is are well not invent, but do you do you look at the real atrocities we see happening today? I mean, uh, you know, it was it was interesting because uh, you know in the scenes where there's the stonings um, of of people to be killed and so on and so forth, those are things that happen today, and every day, every day, um, every day, and genital female genital mutilation every day and every day sometimes in America, not just you know uh, you know in in parts of the world that that are far away from us and feel far away from us. Do you now so that to, do you look at those things and say we have to kind of put those in the show or is it more uh it's a little more organic than that but it's close. Um and and it, it's different in a few important ways. Um I don't think anybody's out there reading the paper saying we should do this, we should do that, we should do this. Uh when when I think about the show and the way that our writing staff thinks about the show is we are very much telling a story uh, of Offred. So you're putting her in situations, the situations she would be put in. Unfortunately, she doesn't have a ton of agency in her day. Um, and then playing out those scenarios. and But those scenarios in Gilead often lead us to the same kind of situations you, you are led to in the real world that kind of are the environment for some terrible, uh, oppressive misogyny. Um, and so our story of female genital mutilation um, about a character named Emily, who uh, was played by Alexis Bledel, astonishingly, um, you know, she was, she's a, a lesbian woman. She is convicted of having a lesbian relationship. And uh, so you know, we were just thinking about how would they punish her? I mean, you know, we know that that's not legal in Gilead. That's one of our rules. They're quite uh, kind of in a strange, ridiculous way. Just they think lesbianism is ooky. It seems like they're they're all so freaked out. Um, and then sounds awfully Republican. It, but it sounds awfully. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I thought it sounded awfully, you know, Republican from thirty years ago. But I guess I was wrong. But. Um, uh, and so we looked into female genital mutilation because we wanted to see about, well, why would they do that? And people act, and it is used for exactly this purpose, which is to, to um, restrict female sex drive, you know, to be inappropriate sexuality, a child caught masturbating, something like that. And so it, it just seemed like a perfect match. Uh, but I think that we are, the writers in general and the cast in general are very newsy people, very news it. junkie yeah. people. So I don't think it's, People aren't going out and looking for stuff, uh, but everybody's very, very aware. Um, I think probably our writing room in general watches more news and reads more news than fiction. So one of the things you talked about how you have a, a you know, you, you're, you're, I think you're incredibly good at character. And, and, um, and one of the things I found so fascinating uh, that my wife actually mentioned um, is that all of the women in the show are – are fully formed characters. They have backstories and things like that. And, and the men, not as much. Was that intentional? Uh, not, no, not, not completely. I mean, I, I, I think, uh, very, I, I very much follow my curiosity with this show and, and the curiosity of the writing staff. Uh, 
I, when I read the book, there were things I wanted to know more about. And I didn't know Margaret Atwood, and I had no way of finding out more. So you read the book over and over again. You find out more interesting things. You can extrapolate out from little moments. Um, and then when I got the chance to do the show, I've just been following like, oh, this would be interesting. I want to know what happens here. And so it, it doesn't kind of it, – it, I'm interested in all the characters and all of their backstories. Um, but it is a show where June is the point of view. And so uh, to a certain degree, the flashbacks um, are things that at some point June would know, that someone would have told her that or, you know, at some point she would have found something out, whether or not it's now or or after Gilead Falls when she's reading, you know, people's diaries or documents that were left behind. So uh, uh, that's really kind of the, the the logical route I'm going is where is there a place where, where she might have found out about this. And so, I, you know I, – I don't look at it. I really don't look at it as a as a male female thing. Um, I look at it as a as the show centered on Alfred. It's her point of view. Who who would she have an easier time understanding, and who would she have a less easier time of understanding? Um, I think the 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 commander uh, who Joseph Fiennes plays um, is absolutely fascinating, but kind of opaque. Yeah, and that's one of the great things. You don't want to peel back too much because I don't know that Alfred. I don't, excuse me, June. It's it's hard not to call her off. Right? I don't know that June uh, uh, knows very much about him. Or, in fact, if she found out stuff, how would she process it and put it together like, oh, these are the building blocks of this gentleman? So I think that um, she – until I feel like June really starts to understand the guy's backstory, I don't want to lay it out. Uh, and that's back to point of view and to feel like you're looking at the world through Lizzie's eyes. Um, what, uh, what's, what's one of your favorite scenes in, in the book and, and the show? Is there, you know, a moment that you, if you had to take one little clip, um, one, one paragraph or chapter, what, what would you say is your favorite moment? Uh, well, can I take two? Yeah, of course. You can take as many as you want. Oh, okay. Um, well, then let's start with, (laughs) (laughs) uh, pilot, teaser, pilot, teaser, (laughs) um, uh, well, I'm going to take one from the book and one that wasn't in the book, but certainly was inspired by the book. Um, what my favorite, one of my favorite things from the book is the very, very beginning when she's in her room. Um, and the reason from there, – there's two reasons. One, it was incredibly effective when I read it in the book, just the, the writing and the and kind of the, the, the pace that you immediately get of someone who is living a very slow – careful life. And you put this, you actually took this and put it in the beginning of the show. It's yeah. the same exact language, right? It's, it's, it's close. It's 99%. I mean, even when, uh, even when I take something out of the book and I take a lot of stuff directly out of the book, um, uh, you end up fussing with it a little bit. Um, and you know, at the beginning, that's very hard to say, Oh, let me just fix up this Margaret Atwood, you know, <laughs> this, oh, this is such, you know, pedestrian writing. I'm going to really put my step. Mostly what we're doing is is trimming and, uh, you know, moving little pieces around that might not quite make sense in context. But but we are, you know, have a great amount of fealty to the book and the text. Uh, but I loved how immediately she establishes uh, the internal pace of June's monologue and that it was a way to survive the incredible boredom and slow pace of this world. And so just, I know it sounds weird, but a pacing um, 
trick like that. Uh, you know, uh, it's it's so so many levels down in terms of storytelling, so complicated. But she does it absolutely effortlessly. Margaret does it at the beginning of the book. You know, she does it with you know, it's it's words and periods. You know, it's a, a table, a chair, a lamp, and all of a sudden you're slowing down as well. And I was just always so impressed by that. Um, so as far as Margaret. I mean, that's one of my favorite moments, and it's so beautiful, and Lizzie has so much going on. I don't know if you know, she she memorizes all the voiceover and oh, wow. does it in her head as she's sitting there silently hmm. doing the scene, which is, uh, you know, one of the reasons the performance is so incredible, and one of the reasons we end up cutting out a lot of voiceover, because you can read it on her face. The scene that I, one of the, I, there, there are so many scenes in the show that I'm in love with, but... Um, there's a couple of scenes in the episode where we show the backstory of how June and Luke met. And there's a scene in a restaurant where they are talking about not sleeping together. Um, it's probably four minutes, five minutes long. It's not anything you normally see on a TV show. It's, I think, an incredible performance from both of them. Uh, it feels really real. Um, it, but it's just this, like, master class in, like, emotional discomfort and reading signals and people saying things that aren't true and the way that they do it and how much you feel from both of them it just it it I just thought it was remarkable and there's a scene later in that episode which was one of my favorite scenes and shows you how strange my idea of a favorite scene is is that um it's um June is in bed after her you know she's been having an affair with Luke and Luke comes in and she just says, I want you to leave your wife. And he says, okay. Yeah, I thought that was brilliant. And and it was it was one of my favorite moments. And when when I thought about when we worked on that scene, uh, it was always that simple. And the thing that I loved about it was just that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a line in the movie Moonstruck where um, uh, John Patrick Shanley writes that, you know, love just screws everything up. You know, everybody talks about, you know, love is a, it's a big mess. It makes everything awful, you know, and, 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 you know, there's nothing nice, neat and clean about it. And you should just forget that that's the way the story's supposed to end because it's big and messy. And I always felt like that really rang true in that scene for me is that I love the way Luke is like, you know, he agrees. Okay. We're going to, you know, I'm going to leave my wife and, and, June is immediately like, what do you mean, okay? What do you mean? <laughs> hey, wait, what do you mean? And he says, well, what else am I going to do? I'm in love with you. And there's this great, like, it's this warm, wonderful feeling and this terrible feeling of inevitability. And I just, I, there was something so remarkable about, about, about the way that they played it and something, there's a connection that seems timeless between the two of them so that no matter how long the show goes on, you feel like in some ways they are, uh, they're fastened together. They are two pieces of Lego that are not coming apart. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Like many of you, I've become a voracious podcast listener. One of my favorites is a podcast called Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Jill interviews informative and entertaining guests each week to uncover surprising financial insights, and she does it without all that financial jargon that none of us understand. It's a great show because it's not just entertaining and fascinating to listen to, but it also gives you actionable information to make the most of your money. She did this recently in an episode that features Michael Lewis, the best-selling author and my colleague of Vanity Fair. You might recognize Michael's work. He's the author of Moneyball, The Blind Side, The Big Short, 
Many of these are New York Times bestsellers that have been turned into amazing films, and you should read all of them. I'm a huge fan of Michael's work, and he's been a huge inspiration to me, my own book writing. Um, in his sit-down with Jill, Michael focuses on his latest book, The Undoing Project, which explores how a strange friendship led to the creation of the field of behavioral economics, which in turn revolutionized big data studies, advanced evidence-based medicine, and led to a new approach in government regulation. Be sure to check out Michael Lewis on Better Off with Jill Schlesinger wherever you subscribe to your favorite podcasts. It is absolutely a great, great podcast to listen to. So I uh, have been a technology reporter for a long time and, you know, have these fears that one day, you know, the power will go out or, you know, and we could fall into You'll chaos. Okay. And we've read, I've probably read too many Cormac McCarthy books. But um, <laughs> but uh, every time Donald Trump tweets, you know, I, I end up going on Amazon and like buying a new earthquake supply kit. My basement is literally just filled with all these <laughs> things. Uh do you ever do you w- ever worry that we will fall into some sort of dystopian future like this? Not like this specifically with like a Gilead and things like that, but you know when you look at how um, uh, there's a there's a piece in Harper's this week which is uh, really fascinating and it's a little hyperbolic, but um, where it talks about how um, you know in Hitler's rise um, there was one major event that happened where they changed the laws and said you know people can't speak freely, they can't organize, they started refusing to let the press be free and so on and so forth. You could imagine, and the article says you can imagine some sort of cataclysmic terrorist attack in America where the same thing happens. Do you, like living in this world of The Handmaid's Tale, do you ever worry that that something will happen? Uh, y- yes and no. I mean, I, I, I think, um, I, I, I absolutely think that, that um, uh, people can either manufacture or take advantage of a, of a particularly convulsive moment, uh, a terrorist attack, um, you know, the Reichstag fire, um, you know, you know, the Indian attacks in, in, um, uh, the Puritan times was, you know, were used kind of, you know, to, to clamp down on everybody. Um, Indian attacks where like three people died. I mean, it was not, <laughs> it yeah. was not, you know, not <laughs> massacres. Uh, so, you know, there's always that possibility. And I, and I, you know, I feel that possibility with uh, this administration um, because it seems like such a, an insecure group. Um, but, uh, you know, on the one hand, I can, you can absolutely see that happening. I always worry about my own imagination with those things because I'm paid to have a really, really good imagination. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I don't have any idea whether I'm actually looking at something that's real or just looking at it something I think would be a good idea. I extrapolate really well. Um, and I lie exceptionally well. Those are my two jobs. Uh, but I, I can um, see those kind of situations aligning. Uh, I am not a big believer in kind of the idea that that you know worldwide cataclysm. Uh, I just don't think it's very likely, just because it's a big world. One of our problems is we've got so many people and they're spread all over the planet. One of the great things is we have so many people and they're spread all over the planet. Um, so I, I mean, one day there is going to be a day where a meteor comes and slams into Earth, and you know wipes out anything that's here. Will we still be here? I don't know, but it's going to happen. It's just math. Um, but with a human-born uh, problem, like a political problem, like what we have in Gilead or the the Hunger Games kind of um, feeling, um, I 
looking at it, look, trying to make a show where you really have to think through what Gilead would be doing, it seems so hard and so unlikely and so impossible to, you know, Americans and humans in general are so ornery. And how do you say it? We're obstetrious. 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 Um, they are just – you know, Americans particularly really don't like being told what to do. And I think they'd rather, you know, rebel against something, even if they disagree with it. They just like to not do what people tell them. I, you know, certainly my 12-year-old daughter feels that way. Um, and I think that that's a really good uh, human trait that keeps us from being – uh, it keeps us from being put under the thumb for very long in terms of the, you know, the totalitarian regimes that have existed. You know, it, it, it's tough, man. I mean, it's it's it takes a lot of work and a lot of true believers, and it also takes a ton of trust in, and uh, in a in a scenario in a setup that is built on not trusting. You know, you got to trust all these people to execute your orders while making sure that you don't trust anybody else there in the world. And I don't think they. They last uh, that long. I don't think it's kind of a natural state. So in terms of like a totalitarian takeover, that's uh, – So we won't, I, we won't be living in Gilead. I, I don't think so. I think one of the great things about the show is that everybody across the political, moral, and religious spectrum can agree that Gilead sucks. Oh, yeah. For, for everybody, for the, for the people who are in charge, for the people who are not in charge, it's, it's – you know, uh, a ridiculous nth degree version of Old Testament justice that is a horror show. Now, in a world where the fertility rate fell precipitously for 10 or 15 years and all of a sudden there were no children and schools were closing down, I can certainly see this something this extreme happening when people are terrified, they take huge jumps and, and huge chances. And, and I completely understand that's why Gilead works. And that's one of the things when you think about the show – that you have to incorporate in your thinking that this is in, in Gilead in our show takes place in the present. It's today. Um, just uh, the past is different though. The past is a past where the, the fertility rate had been falling for a very long time. So things changed culturally, psychologically, politically way before Gilead came along. The, 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 the features of the society that needed to be softened for Gilead to get a foothold happened over a long period of time with this thing in the background. And unlike the convulsion of the Reichstag fire or 9-11 or something like that, this is the kind of – it's the kind of slow burn uh, that changes society but something that is an existential crisis so people are terrified. So I think that, um, you know, it, it, it more is akin to uh, climate change I think than, than to um, a terrorist attack just in terms of uh, how – Really, extremist parties get entrenched over time. So you're saying I shouldn't I shouldn't buy any more earthquake supply kits? No, no, absolutely, <laughs> certainly buy earthquake supply kits. There's nothing more fun than and, and well, there's nothing more fun than eating them when they are when expiring because then you sit down and go. Oh, I've thank got some God there wasn't MREs an earthquake. in my basement. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. The kids. Come over how old's your for, child? We have a two year old and a four month old. Oh, so. see, yeah, they, they'll love it. You yeah, know, the dried ice cream. They'll go through all of that yeah, stuff. Yeah. It's going to be great. Um, can you give us uh, – maybe you can and it's totally OK if you can't. But can you give us any teasers for the next season? Uh, hell with you. Um, uh, of course. Um, in uh, season two uh, – in the in the first season, we cover a, uh, a good part of the book in terms of the plot. But there are so many things in the first season, as I said, that were one sentence and we turned into a whole show. 
uh, and there were things that were one sentence we wanted to turn into a whole season. I mean, when you think about the other elements of this world, uh, the you know, just other places in this world, the colonies, uh, what's going on in Little America in Toronto and the resistance movement outside of Gilead, like the, you know, the the English Jews trying to have people bomb, have the, have the military bomb Auschwitz and stuff like that. There, you know, all of these uh, areas that are, you know, pressing in and and affecting June, uh, but you don't you you don't see them in the in the book except they're mentioned because June's point of view is so limited. So uh, we have we we want to explore a lot of those places, um, and also I I think the the biggest thing is you want to put uh, June in a new position, not necessarily a new place, but a new position in that place. You know, and her status has changed quite a bit at the end of the first season when she discovers she's pregnant. Um, uh, we, you know, the life of a pregnant handmaid and the life of a, of a non-pregnant handmaid are very, very different things. Um, all of a sudden, whereas before they were, you know, your body is a vessel, it's an empty vessel here. They're looking past you to a child. You're literally a walking incubator. And, uh, so no matter how angry you get at the walking incubator, you don't want to unplug it. Um, so, uh, you know, people have to treat, June differently. Uh, but I, I think we've got lots and lots of stuff to, to do. And, and I love the flashbacks that we've been doing. I feel like are just scratching the surface in terms of seeing people's lives and those little pivot points in people's lives that, that you don't notice them when they happen. But then looking back, you say, oh, that was the end of this and the beginning of this. I didn't really see that coming. So we walk around the house and we'll say things like "under his eye" and uh, uh, "and blessed be the fruit." Do you do you all do that in the writers' room and at home? And uh, it it is often the sign off for most emails. I think it's the uh, what's the what's the top one? Uh, under his eye. Under his eye. Um, there was a very brief time where Lizzie started to call me the commander, where I put the kibosh on that quite quickly. I do not want to get into that. That is a particular psychological minefield I do not want to get close to. Um, and I in no way, shape, or form want to be <laughs> lumped in with the commander. Uh, but um, yes, all those things, all those pieces of language seep in. And it was very funny because when you read the book and you think, huh, I'm going to write this in a script that's going to sound so dorky. It's not going to work. And it really does. I mean, I, I was, the actors found, you know, committed themselves to it and made it seem like they're hellos and goodbyes. And, and that, that's, that's just a miracle. Uh, that, that ability to kind of make something that seems so written, seems so casual. And so it was the same thing with the costumes. Uh, one of the things every department we focused on was making sure the costumes look like real people costumes. And, they look like things people wear and they're dirty and they're worn out and and because they're wearing them every day. And I think it's the same thing with the language. They made it worn out. They made it part of their lives. And to the point where where you realize, and I think the reason you say it and the reason I say it, you know, to friends and stuff, is that the the statements in and of themselves are actually kind of sweet. Mm-hmm. You know? You know, it's like peace be with you, you know, go in grace, um, uh, you know, under his eye, which is a little creepier than some of the others, but blessed be the fruit and all these things. And I think that there's something about it that that uh, there, there's a, a irony when people use it, but also it's kind of on its face what you realize is before it gets twisted up, it's kind of nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the things I think that Gilead, one of the reasons you feel so ooky when you watch the show is that Gilead does some things really well. Boy, it's pretty. Boy, it's 
you know, so, so, you know, there's not very much pollution, uh, you know, all these things they do really well. It's safe. Um, and so, you know, it's like, uh, it's like meeting a friend who's a terrible human being, but they make great pasta. You know, do you ask them for the recipe or <laughs> is it, a, is it evil person pasta who you hate and, and you don't want their pasta, That's but funny. the pasta is still good. And so here, you know, the, you know, can you separate the good things and the bad things out from Gilead without feeling like you're a Gilead defender by saying, wow, it would be nice if we reduced our carbon emissions by 45%. So the last question I ask everyone before, before I wrap up is um, if you could go back in time, 20 years, 10 years, whatever it is, and give your younger self some advice, what would it be? Be patient. Um, I read this book in 1987, and now I'm running the show. Um, I 10 years ago, five years ago, eight years ago, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to do it. I, my writing wouldn't have been good enough. Um, I, you know, I have, uh, I've been married for 22 years, 23 years. I, you know, I have three children. I have a life. I, I, I know people who have uh, been through a lot of, ups and downs. Um, and I think that, that, uh, patience is something that I wasn't particularly patient, um, when I was younger and it's something I've grown to be, be more patient. But I think that, uh, not, you know, people say, Oh, don't give up on things. And I think it's different than that. It's, it's, uh, don't actively give up. Don't throw stuff away. Put stuff on a shelf. Don't, you don't have – there's no reason that just because someone tells you you're never going to write Handmaid's Tale as a series that you're not. I mean until it's a series or even after it's a series. I can't tell you the number of times someone said, oh, don't go out and pitch that. They're making another movie or series about that and yours will never go. And then the, the thing that they talked about that was absolutely going to go never amounts to anything. So just uh, remembering – kind of being comfortable in the things that you think are cool and interesting and you would like to see as movies. Your, your opinion is just as valid as anybody else's. Um, uh, and, and just to be patient. Cool. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Thanks to my guest, Bruce Miller. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, SeatGeek and Betterman. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I'll leave you with this last little word, under his eye.